0: Hey everyone, this is Cole
1: and I'm Sarah and we're guest hosting from Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome back to another episode of Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. In each episode of this series, we take a look at the intersection of climate change and health, summarize the latest research, and share the expertise of current climate health activists. Today, we're going to talk about climate change hitting the south as we look back on the 2021 Texas winter storm one year later. This episode was guest written by students at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School, which stands on the occupied lands of the Comanche nation.
0: So winter storm Uri, or as some affectionately call it, Snowvid, was a cold weather system that wreaked havoc across North America from February 13th to February 17th of 2021. It formed in the Pacific Northwest and then moved southward across the continent where its wrath was felt, especially in the great state of Texas. The storm incited a major power outage in the state and caused nearly $200 million in damages, making it the costliest natural disaster in United States history. Can you believe that? Texans across the state were without power, water, or access to food for more than a week. In July of 2021, about four months after the storm, the New York Times reported that 210 innocent people lost their lives during the storm. Only emphasizing the need to act now to slow climate change and ensure that the Texas power grid is regulated responsibly to withstand freezing temperatures. There is so much more behind the winter storm and the history of the power grid in Texas that led to this disaster. So, we want to make a quick plug for an incredibly well written and well produced podcast called The Disconnect Power, Politics, and the Texas Blackout for those of you who want to learn more about this winter storm crisis.
1: To delve into this further, we'll be talking with two people who directly witnessed the impact of the winter storm on the healthcare system in Austin, Texas. Dr. Sarah Scott, who is an emergency medicine physician in Austin and who teaches at Dell Medical School, and Girija Hari Prasad, a third-year medical student at Dell Med, who was on her emergency medicine rotation at the time
2: of the storm.
0: All right. So first of all, um, Dr. Scott, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: I'm Sarah Scott. I'm an assistant professor at UT Dell Medical School, um, and I work in the emergency department. I'm the clerkship director for the students, and I work primarily at St. Medical Center in Austin.
1: It's so great to have you with us today, Dr. Scott. Could you please tell us about your experience during the 2021 winter storm?
2: Well, I think the 2021 winter storm took everybody by surprise. Um, the length of time that we had cold weather and the amount of snow that we received really um, put the city kind of on shutdown. Unfortunately, the emergency departments can't shut down. The hospitals can't shut down. And so um, really, it became disaster medicine at that point in time um, because we were not able to access a lot of the tools that we typically use in the emergency department. So our computer systems were down um, we didn't have uh, as much heat as we normally might have. And there were some problems with water in the city in general, which then affected the hospitals.
0: Water problems, um, you know, I knew that a lot of people's homes' water pipes broke and stuff, but they had similar problems even at the hospital.
2: Yeah, so it affected the flow rates of water at the hospitals. Um, some hospitals had pipes that, burst, causing leakage on certain floors of the hospital, which then became unusable. Um, Some hospitals' heating systems rely on water. And so um, there were certain hospitals in the city that actually had to evacuate because they couldn't fully heat their hospital, um, which really put a strain on the remaining hospitals, which already were kind of functioning under disaster capacity.
1: The term disaster medicine is not something that I've heard before as a medical student. Could you explain that concept a little bit more? And have you ever had to practice under a disaster medicine capacity before?
2: Well, I think the ED on a micro level practices a little bit of disaster medicine every single day. Um, We're really good at triaging patients, obviously, because that's part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. That becomes much more important when you're practicing in a disaster situation, where you don't have the capacity to care for every patient necessarily in the way that you normally would. Um, And having a way to triage them to say, hey, you are stable enough to go home and follow up versus we really need to care for you at this moment. Um, And so I think the ED is really quite good at that.
0: Wow. Okay. And so working with limited resources, like you said, water and heat, um, that kind of governs a little bit more a little bit more of those like triage decisions you know we don't really you're stable enough that you don't need to be here, and we have other patients that um that need you know more of our focused attention with the limited re- resources that we have yeah, wow, what sorts of uncommon pathologies um did you see or did you hear about as a result of the storm?
2: Well, there were a couple here in Texas that maybe aren't uncommon in other places, but we don't see a lot of carbon monoxide intoxications typically in Austin. Uh, But because people were without heat for so long in the city, they were using heaters inside that maybe they shouldn't necessarily have been using the way the heaters were exhausting. So we saw a lot more carbon monoxide intoxication than we normally would. Additionally, although we do see people who have end-stage renal disease that come in needing emergent dialysis, um, we typically don't see a lot of patients coming in at one time needing emergent dialysis. With the situation that happened in Austin, the decreased water flow, uh, dialysis clinics closing throughout the city, we had a large population of patients who had missed about a week of dialysis. And these are patients that usually go three times a week. So we had a large number of patients in need of emergent dialysis presenting to the emergency department during this winter storm.
1: Yeah, that sounds definitely like traumatizing for patients. I can't imagine having to seek life-saving treatment because you need dialysis, but then having to think about how do I even drive to the clinic when I don't know how to drive in snow? And so the next question I wanted to ask you is, um as we're starting to see more climate events where we it will be more common to really dip into lower temperatures um what do you what do you think that the EDs need to really start preparing for or maybe some um plans that they can improve upon as we start to see climate events more regularly
2: You know it's interesting I feel like it's not really just the ED that needs to kind of adapt I think as a whole, we really need some infrastructure to help you know, with the problems because the ED isn't going to be able to manage um, being without power in the city. Uh, that really is going to be more of a statewide kind of management plan. Um, the ED certainly wants to help patients that are presenting, that are You know, cold that don't have the ability to get to their clinics that have come down with infectious diseases during that time or are having strokes and heart attacks. Um, But I think that really there's got to be some like infrastructure changes to help with the problems that are occurring as far as the water, the heat, Um, and then, you know, having patients be prepared to be in their homes for a week at a time if they need to. So I think that that is also difficult because sometimes it's not a predictable event. I don't think anyone predicted that people would be stuck in their homes without heat for five to seven days.
1: And I think that touches on something that we also wanted to ask you with um, how can physicians help patients kind of gain knowledge and get prepared to either buy supplies or to learn more about the dangers of carbon monoxide poisoning, what are some ways that physicians and medical students can talk to patients as we start getting into colder weather?
2: I think that if you know that there is a winter storm coming, definitely talking to patients who are presenting to your clinics in the preceding days about what to do. If you have dialysis patients you know, coming up with a plan for what to do if they can't make it to their dialysis clinic because of weather, You know, how long is reasonable for them to feel like they could go without dialysis? What are the warning signs that they need to go to the emergency department if they've been missing their dialysis because of weather? Um, I think particularly patients that have chronic diseases that are being managed, those uh, specialty clinics that are managing those diseases, maybe it's an oncology patient who needs frequent transfusions, like giving them a plan of what to do if there's an inclement weather event That we foresee a hurricane a flood um, a winter weather storm um, how long can they reasonably go and when do they need to seek emergency care if they cannot make it to their regularly scheduled appointments
0: so it sounds like uh you're saying that beyond you know um, the the preparation of the emergency department or the hospital um, there's a lot of personal preparation that patients can put in with the help of their provider um and then it sounds like you're also saying that there's a lot that we can be doing, um, you know, policy wise on a community, state, and national level to prepare. Um, you know, obviously physicians, medical students, residents, we're all very busy with what we're doing and you know, with our careers. What are your thoughts on how, um, you know, healthcare providers can, at least, you know, get involved or help advocate for those, um you know, those changes that need to happen, you know, for instance, with the Texas power grid or, or whatever else.
2: I mean, I think the problem that arises in healthcare goes unseen by the patients who don't need healthcare during the disaster, you know, so bringing to light, like what actually happened to patients that needed dialysis during this week and how did that impact them emotionally, but also financially now they're requiring maybe an ICU hospitalization, To take care of their uh, emergency dialysis needs as opposed to being able to go outpatient to their clinic. So, what the cost of that is, emotionally and financially, and bringing that to light on a more public level. And it wasn't just dialysis patients, patients that had carbon monoxide intoxication, patients that had cold related injuries, um, all of those things, bringing them to light the actual social, emotional, and financial cost that may have gone unnoticed in patients or people who didn't need medical care during the disaster. So really just advocating for the patients and, and allowing people to see what actually happened during that week. And I think this podcast is a good start.
1: I completely agree, Dr. Scott. Thank you so much. And before we close out, is there anything else you would like to add
2: Um, I just would like to highlight how dedicated a lot of the staff were, not just in the emergency departments, but in the hospitals in general. Um, We had physicians and residents and nurses who stayed at local hotels so that they would be able to walk to their shifts. They didn't go home during the whole disaster. Um, We had physicians and nurses who pulled double shifts so that more providers did not have to come in during that time. And so I do think that there is a lot of dedication among healthcare workers, um, and it wasn't just the healthcare workers—the people who provide food services, the people who clean the rooms—like everybody had to stay longer um, and come in in inclement weather and leave their families and leave their families in cold houses. And so I do think that a lot of thanks and gratitude should go to the the staff of the facilities that stayed open.
0: Wow. Yeah, definitely. That is inspiring. And I think it also exposes how uh, as providers in our healthcare system and and our healthcare system in general, we need to think about how we keep healthcare workers safe during these climate events and how do we distribute care in a way that is sustainable, uh, especially as these climate events will continue to increase over the coming years. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott, and thank you, Sarah, for joining us. All right, so our next guest is Girja Hari Prasad, a third-year medical student at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Welcome, Girja. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Um, First of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Thanks for having me. Um, I was born and raised in Baldwin, Missouri, and then I went to Baltimore for college at Johns Hopkins, um, where I studied neuroscience in Spanish. And then after college, I taught high school biology in Southeast Dallas for a few years before moving to Austin for medical school. Um, So
1: Kiraja, thanks so much for joining us today, like Cole said. Um, so we reached out to you because we heard that um, during the 2021 winter storm, you were doing your emergency department rotation. And we just wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience as a medical student during the winter storm.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that comes to mind is getting to and from my shifts the emergency department was definitely um, a fear that we all had as students and just as faculty, as attendings, residents, everybody had the same fear. Um, and I thought about how if that was a fear for me as a privileged student who has a car, who lived in places where I had experience driving in snow, um, I could call for help if I needed. It really made me think about how patients had an even larger fear and how that must have been an even larger problem for people who might not have access to their own transportation, um, who might not be familiar with cold weather or who had to depend on public transport that was absolutely shut down. So I think our first fears or our first thoughts as, as students rotating through the department were whether we'd even see patients and how that would have a later impact in the days to come because people might be putting off health issues that wouldn't probably need to be seen emergently.
0: Yeah. I remember that, um, you know, and I was a medical student uh, on rotations at the same time, and it was a huge question of how are we even going to get to our shifts? Is it safe for us to go outside? Um, you know, in central Texas, we're not used to having snow on the roads and, uh, you know, people aren't used to driving that. And the city really isn't prepared to, you know, salt roads or plow the roads. Um, so that the roads are safe.
3: Yeah, I also think it was, there was a huge, obviously a huge infrastructure issue, like you said, Coles, it's, I mean, I imagine it's probably going to happen again. So that's, that is enormous equity issue that needs to be considered.
0: Yeah, definitely. What, what is the distribution of the very limited resources that we have? And what does that distribution say about the priorities of the city and the people of the city? That's a That's a great point. So go ahead and tell us about what it was like when you finally did get on to your shifts in, in the ED.
3: Yeah, sure. So um, my first day back, that was which was like purely self-selective because our clinical director was extremely understanding about us getting back on, um, I had a morning shift, which is how I felt most comfortable driving in because it was sunny, I could see, hopefully find it, patches on the road, I don't know, trying to ride driver drive around them. Um, and when I got to the ED, the very first thing I remember is that it, was barren it was extremely empty and that was really weird because I mean Dell Medical School is the only level one trauma center in central Texas and so used to it being very full of people very busy there's always a hustle bustle and it was quiet like you could hear the nurses talking in the nurse station but there is a very tense energy because I think everybody knew that this was because something was very wrong and we were almost like on edge waiting for the influx to start happening.
0: Yeah. That, you know, that's kind of reminiscent of, uh you know, the er- very early days of the pandemic, right. When people were afraid to go to the hospital.
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think similar to the pandemic, everybody kind of waited for the tipping point and to, like j- that same thing happened with this winter storm. It felt like once we started seeing patients, it was that, everyone at home had finally thought, okay, I am really desperately in need of going to the emergency department. So I have to get in. And so once the influx started, it was a lot. Um, The waiting rooms were overflowing with people. The hallway was overflowing with people. And um, as students, we rotate with two emergency departments. So I had the chance to go to both of our um, programs, both of our emergency departments in Austin. And each hospital was seeing kind of like a different population of patients at that time. And even though we were maybe redirecting the more severe patients to the downtown location and the less severe patients to um, our other location, it was, the capacity was just overwhelming. There were not enough rooms. There were not enough beds. People were in the hallway. There was only like one water fountain we could use. There was one restroom that could be used because of the resource issues. Um, And we, I think, I mean, initially there was a little bit of emergency related events, like a car accident here and there, um, which is obviously really scary and traumatic for the people who are experiencing it. And like, luckily we had a lot of very skilled providers on duty to help with it. But um, I think what was more concerning were more of the chronic issues that we started seeing come into the department. And issues that we're not necessarily supposed to deal with in the emergency department, especially an emergency department in Texas. <laughs> so um, one of the first things we saw, we started seeing were a lot of people who were experiencing homelessness, who were coming in, who did, didn't have clothes or shelter or anything. And they were hypothermic, very cold, sometimes with a fear of frostbite. And it was something that our providers knew they would have to treat, but are not experts in because we're in Central Texas. So I remember seeing a lot of providers like having to educate themselves really quickly to understand how they could deal with that problem. Um, and then have to work with like social work staff and other staff in the hospital, to make sure we could get resources for these individuals experiencing homelessness that they could not get anywhere else. So did we have enough water to give them? Did we have food we could give them, right? Because everything was shut down. We only had essential staff at the hospital too. So that was a huge concern. Um, and then our other really, really huge concern were patients who had missed their dialysis appointment. So that really makes me think of patients who were at home and just stayed at home until they could not anymore. And dialysis is not a quick fix. So once we had patients in two or three rooms, we had to wait a really long time to make sure that those patients were stable before we could send them to another floor of the hospital or send them to a dialysis center somewhere else in the city. And that wait time between stabilizing one patient and having another patient who also needed dialysis in the waiting room was a scary process. So it was a lot of running around and making sure that we were doing every week, everything that we could for a patient, but that is, it is a scary thing to see as a provider and then also have to explain to a patient and their loved ones, like, hey, we know you need this thing to make sure that your body doesn't stop working, but we're also helping somebody else with the same problem, and so you just have to wait, and that's not ever a fun thing to tell anyone, and I can't imagine what it's like to hear that. I think you were
1: bringing up so many
3: really important points. Um,
1: one thing I, I I wanted to ask again about was uh, providers were having to kind of educate themselves on these different um, illnesses that maybe they learned in medical school or like briefly in residency, but that they're just not um, practice, uh, they don't practice
3: a lot in like the region that they're in. You're You're right. So it's just, it's a very specific event driven thing that we learn about for a test maybe or like really skilled attendings or residents who train in certain areas are very skilled at it and then they yeah. might move to a certain location and not have to use it ever again but i think there is an opportunity now with our changing world that wherever you are in the country you need to be prepared for anything at this point and so there's a need and a way to incorporate disaster medicine. I think it's relevant to every specialty, right? It wasn't just the emergency department that was experiencing these issues. Like the entire hospital was having to think on their feet and really access solutions that they may not have had to think about ever again. So I think a really important inclusion that needs to happen in our education.
0: Wow. Thank you for your thoughts and for sharing your experiences on that. Um, So Kind of to dovetail into what I wanted to talk about next, uh, you know, you mentioned um, this is maybe should be included as uh, part of the training for residents and medical students going forward. Um, what do you think that looks like for medical students? How can medical students be better prepared to treat patients in a changing climate?
3: I think there's a lot of different ways that we can learn about how climate change affects medicine. I think. I think the biggest way that we can talk about it is in terms of resource education. I think understanding health implications and disaster implications are really important, um, but that's not necessarily the way that climate change shows up every single day in healthcare as a system. Um, so, I think it's really important to just start by having like very honest and open conversations about how many resources we use in healthcare and how much resource waste there is in healthcare. Um, like understanding the cost of every single thing that we order, like there is a physical financial cost, but there's also an environmental cost to things that we're doing. And I even think about, I know in in education, we have to do a certain amount of resource waste for educational purposes. So like learning how to do sterile technique is one place where it's easy to see how many things get thrown away. And I know that we shouldn't compromise our education at all. I know that to some degree, it's important to use things so that we can learn how to do it the right way. But there should be a method to reuse some of the resources that we have, reuse things for education instead of... Just like taking a new kit every single time and throwing it away, I think there is a tremendous amount of waste that happens in that sphere.
1: Okay, and and one of our last questions is: I know we talked about what medical students can do to be better prepared to treat patients, but why do you think medical students should be involved in the fight to slow climate change?
3: That is a really great and large question to answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think for why medical students should be involved um, at the end of the day as future physicians or you know any healthcare profession, as a member, a future member of the healthcare system, we're each a part of a system that has an enormous carbon footprint. And I think that acknowledging that is the first step because once we acknowledge that we can all work together to accumulate a lot of simple, small steps that we can each commit to. And honestly, I think sometimes any individual, but also medical students, we can feel lost in the enormity of the healthcare system. We kind of just feel like one really tiny part of it. And so sometimes a change that we might make or advocate for doesn't really feel impactful. But I think it's important to remember that there's hundreds of thousands of us across the United States, across the world, and we're all learning to, to be a provider. And I think if we each started with something really small, the effect of that multiplies so quickly that at the end of the day, we have a bigger impact than we could have imagined. Um, and then I think for how medical students can get involved, it's really important to remember that nothing is too small. Joining your environmental health interests group on your campus. Even like carpooling with your classmates to school, to the hospital, using public transport. There's a lot of personal steps that medical students can take. And like I said, I think that really adds up. And then it also builds investment and in understanding how a larger system can also take small steps. And I think you're touching on something that is really fundamental
1: in the environmental justice movement is I think a lot of times when we think about climate change or these major climate events, it can become honestly just very depressing, very overwhelming. But it, like you said, we do need to come together and make these small changes and um, put ourselves in communities where individuals are committed to learning, to making mistakes, to um, encouraging everyone else. And That's why we're so thankful we have, you know, Medical Students for a Sustainable Future and the Environmental Health Interest Group here at Dell. And I also wanted to highlight that students have sought to bring attention to this by starting the Planetary Health Report Card, which is specific to medical students, uh, medical schools around the country where they are really highlighting the initiatives that their schools are taking and where there is room for improvement um, to work alongside faculty to
3: make a more sustainable future. That's really exciting. And I think it's part of a really great larger movement. And I think like, I mean, we're working on a racial ju- justice report card for our school as well. And I that is also another movement that's happening across the country. And like you said earlier, Sarah, those two things are so closely intertwined that the more we can bring attention to these issues individually and then draw them together, the more change that we're going to be able to make.
0: Wonderful. Girja, thank you so much for encouraging us all to work together for a more sustainable future. Um, We know that a sustainable future is possible, and it's just something that we need to start on now. So thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott and Girja, for taking the time to share your thoughts and your experiences. To sum it all up, here are some tangible action items for our listeners. First, Include disaster medicine education for various types of severe weather crises in all specialties of graduate medical training.
1: Become familiar with the impact of public environmental policy on disaster preparedness in your community and take the responsibility to represent the voice of healthcare providers in forming such
0: policies. If you as a provider know a storm is coming, Educate your patients and encourage them to plan for limited resources, such as food and water, limited transportation, especially with regards to upcoming health maintenance appointments, like for dialysis, and for cold temperatures in case the power goes out or shelter is compromised.
1: Rethink how resources are used and waste is produced in the context of medical education and design an action plan for less resources to be consumed in the clinical and educational settings.
0: And finally, encourage your medical school to get involved with medical students for a sustainable future, start or join an environmental health interest group at your school, and encourage students and faculty to complete a planetary health report card or review action items from the last time a planetary health report card was completed at your institution.
1: And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Code Green, the climate smart health professional. Again, I'm Sarah.
0: And I'm Cole, and we look forward to seeing you next time.